Today on Nurse Talk. States of Grace, from doctor to patient and back again, San Francisco internist Dr. Grace Damon is with us today. Here comes the 2020 Trump budget, and it cuts billions from Social Security and Medicare. Promise made, promise broken. And nurses all over the country joining with thousands to support the Medicare for All Act. All this and more today on Nurse Talk. Welcome to Nurse Talk. I'm Casey Hobbs, along with my co-host Shane Mason. Good to have you back in the booth, Shane. And we are two of the thousands of nurses on duty today. Hey, Casey, as always, we have a great show today. One of our most poignant interviews over the years was the story of Dr. Grace Damon. Some of our listeners may be familiar with this extraordinary story, which was the subject of the award-winning documentary States of Grace. She'll be with us in just a few minutes. And let's not forget to thank all of our listeners on Tom Hartman Program, Progressive Voices Tune In, WFTE, iTunes, and all of our broadcast partners and organizational partners. Thank you. You know, if you were to follow a busy doctor as he makes his daily round of calls, you'd find yourself having a mighty busy time keeping up with him. Time out for many men of medicine usually means just long enough to enjoy a cigarette. And because they know what a pleasure it is to smoke a mild, good-tasting cigarette, they're particular about the brand they choose. In a repeated national survey, Doctors in all branches of medicine, doctors in all parts of the country were asked, what cigarette do you smoke, doctor? Once again, the brand named most was Camel. Yes, according to this repeated nationwide survey, more doctors smoke Camels than any other cigarette. Why not change to Camels for the next 30 days and see what a difference it makes in your smoking enjoyment? See how Camels agree with your throat. See how mild and good tasting a cigarette can be. I made a decision to be of service to people, and I gave it my all. We are so pleased to honor Grace for her pioneering work caring for individuals living with and dying from AIDS. Thank you, Grace. It's happened again. Another head-on crash on the Golden Gate Bridge. The 60-year-old woman driving suffered major injuries. I get a phone call that there's been an accident. There was no way that anyone thought she would survive the accident. It's a real eye-opener to be on the other side of the caretaker-caregiver divide. She needed an ICU, and then she needed a rehab, and then they sent her home. And where's the doctor? Where's the expert? Where's the nursing staff? Where's the... It's like, well, actually, you're it. I feel like I've lost a best friend. Who was your best friend that you lost? My you body. My body. Mm-hmm. Nothing lasts forever, including great pain, great sorrow, great helplessness. Who am I really now? Who do I want to be now? It wasn't until after Grace came out of a coma that we even started vaguely thinking about the idea of making a film. Grace spent a year in rehab hospitals, and it was the day that she came home that we realized right off the bat that it was going to be a very amazing story. Dr. Grace Damon's life was forever altered when a driver crashed head-on into her car on the Golden Gate Bridge. After a seven-week coma and numerous surgeries, Grace miraculously regained consciousness with her cognitive abilities intact almost entirely, but her body left shattered and severely disabled. And it's our great privilege to have Dr. Grace Damon with us in the studio today. Grace, so wonderful to have you here with us. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. So, Grace, after the accident, you granted director Mark Lipman and Helen Cohen unlimited access to your family, allowing them to follow you as you struggled to reinvent yourself and find meaning and purpose 
in your radically altered post-accident life. Mark and Helen to release the story in a documentary film called States of Grace. Can you talk a little bit about that whole process? Well, let's put it this way. I was obviously brain damaged or else I wouldn't have agreed to that much exposure. <laughs> Let me tell you, watching it now, there's a lot of exposure. But anyway, they were my good friends. They are still my great friends. We love it. We, it's a gift of love on all of our parts. So that's the way I can best state it. It was a gift of love from all of us to anybody in the universe whom we think it will help. And so fast forward 11 years after the accident, here you are with us today. So can you share with us a little bit about how your life has changed since you were last here in 2015? Totally. Well, first of all, I'm not living anymore at Green Gulch, although I was head student there this fall for two months, practice period. Um, my partner, then partner, Fu, is now the abbess. She was away, so I was second you know, seat is what you're in terms of being in a practice period, you're supposed to take care of the younger students. So that completed my Buddhist training. I now live at the Redwoods, which is a senior living facility. Mm -hmm. And it's great in many ways. But I am by far the youngest person there. The average age is 89. Mm -hmm. And I was 67 when I moved in. I'm 71 now. Mm -hmm. And I still work. And I still do the pain clinic. I also work at Green Gulch teach a meditation or two or three courses at the Redwood. I'm busy. You yeah. are. I did a chaplaincy program last fall. I'm really busy. And when you work at Laguna Honda, it's not just the pain clinic. You're also teaching. So right. talk a little bit about that. Well, I'm also chair of the ethics committee. And as we all know, ethical issues in medicine today are fascinating. We have the third right to die piece of legislation in this state. It's complex, fascinating. So I love that. And you've been a physician at Laguna Hana for how many years now? Let's see. I first started moonlighting there when I was in 87. Okay. So whenever that was. Okay. So you're talking That's 20, 30 yeah. years you've been in Laguna years, Honda. Right. And so you founded the first inpatient unit for patients with chronic pain at your hospital? No, AIDS. AIDS. With, with I did AIDS. it okay. with AIDS. Work. All right. And you uh, were honored for your work by the Dalai Lama in 2009. Yeah, yeah. So you've done a lot. Can you talk a little bit about uh, how and why you started the pain clinic? Well, people with chronic pain was seen as a real problem institutionally. And one of my friends was then the medical director. She said, would you come and start a pain clinic? And I said, hating pain myself, said, I'll think about it over time. And then the next day I called her up and I said, yes, I will do it as long as I can have a team and as long as I can make it exactly what I want. She said, I give you full reign. Wow, so, that's great. Remarkable. So talk about your level of pain throughout this because your body was, was crushed. On right. Well, I got 50, something like 65 units of blood in the first 18 hours, I think. Oh, my so God. So I was, Gosh. that is five times my blood volume. Plus, I had factors seven, eight, mm. you know, platelets up the yin yeah. yang. Yeah. They gave me cross match, uncross match blood because I'd <sighs> lost so much. So, anyway, yeah, I know something about pain, but I don't really have never taken it seriously. And I realized <laughs> early on that opiates were just upping my regulation, yeah. up regulating, because they made it worse, not better. So very quickly, I weaned myself off of all of opiates. Wow. And how do you manage the pain without the opiates? Well, 
you develop other strategies. And luckily, I'd sat a lot. I was a meditator, so I understood the pain came and went in nanoseconds. It's not there constantly. It's not even there for three minutes. Never, never can you get somebody to truly focus on pain for more than three minutes. And and just for our listeners, I mean, obviously, you know a lot about it. I, I've had like just chronic back pain, nothing big for but years, right. and it's just worn me down. Right. And I did a um, online chronic pain meditation management, and it it changed everything for everything, me. Everything, And I'm right. a completely different person now. Right. So, yeah, right. I can attest to that. That's remarkable, my... and it was an online course. Yeah. That, so, is, great. You, that you, is great. Yeah, so in the clinic, what is the approach that you take for, for uh, patients? Pretty much. We talk to the patient first. We do a full intake. Um, we don't prescribe pain medication. However, I do consult with all of the prescribing doctors, and I'm really strong in what I feel, but I don't insist on anything. And then we try to give complementary treatments. Mm. We try to get the patient to explore other modalities like touch, any kind of touch. We've got Reiki, mm-hmm. Rolfing, acupuncture, acupressure, acutonics, massage therapy. Incredible. And we've got distant healing, mm. medical qigong. We've got people who are licensed to touch doing all of those, not as their first. You know, I'm a doctor, but I also took um, Rosen body work, but I can't do that very well yeah. right now, but I do do it in the clinic. You know, remarkable. And what's your, I would imagine that you have great success because the opioids is the way that most pain clinics go. And that's just a never ending revolving door. Well, yeah. And we have our problems with opioids, of course, like any institution, because we've got a lot of people with both chronic pain, chronic psych pain, chronic physical pain, chronic spiritual pain. They've been on opiates forever. It's unrealistic yeah. to try to get them off too quickly, but we do make them not escalate. And, and we so, don't don't have a lot of, you know, code blues for inadvertent overdose. Yeah. Which which is huge. Right. I want you to talk a little bit about your Zen practice and how that played a role in all of this in your healing. Well, I was fortunate enough to live at Green Gulch for about twenty seven years. And I lived there when I adopted a child who was also HIV infected. Um, She's 26 now, but she was not expected to live beyond her first six months of life. And I had a private practice in Mill Valley. I worked at UC, I worked at Laguna Honda setting up their step-down unit. And it was before the cocktail, so it was horrible, you know. Mm -hmm. But it was both horrible and wonderful because there's nothing as bad as a life not lived Death isn't the bad thing. A life not lived is the bad thing. So you lived at the Zen Center, and, and you've talked about how was the change from going from the Zen Center to where you're living now? Was that difficult? Has it been a hard transition? Well, you know, I miss it on the one hand. And when I moved back there to be head student, they gave me three or four people to help me out. It was totally unfair um, that any one person should have to help me out. My partner was just glued to that kind mm-hmm. of caretaking role, which he shouldn't have been. I mean, I'm a perfect example of somebody who should not be taken care of by anybody near and dear. I am a person who needs to be taken care of within the public realm 
And luckily, I've got a great retirement policy that provides me enough money so that I can afford it. That's incredible. I wanted you to talk a little bit about you. Before we started this interview, we were talking about uh, you were an activist uh, in the 60s and 70s and went. So talk about that experience and, and where it brought you. Well, it was wonderful. And I can remember my job at the Democratic Convention of 68 was to organize the medical presence. And I remember walking down on Michigan Avenue carrying a guy who obviously had had a broken leg, and I fell on top of him because the police were all over us. He didn't get into the hospital. He was taken straight to jail. And I thought, this will not do. You know, this, and I was part of the group that was convincing all my friend, college friends to come to Chicago and demonstrate. And I thought, this is not right. The means don't justify the ends. Mm. And you were talking about what that did to you spiritually. Uh, So what it made me do is keep looking, you know. And I went to Yale Divinity School as an atheist, um, but I became really enamored by people with faith who had some hope, some way of having hope in their horizon. And, you know, damned if that wasn't true for me after this accident. I realized that I'd learned everything I needed to know by just sitting one long sashin. I'd really learned all I needed to know about living. So I was enormously grateful. Also, I met His Holiness. And meeting one hero in your lifetime is enough. Once I had a hero, now I know exactly what kind of person I'd like to be. So he practices a lot. So maybe there's something to this whole Mm -hmm. practice, working on ourselves, not working on the world. So, Grace, you know we're nurses, and so we're interested in knowing a little bit about what part nurses played in your career as a physician and also what part they played in your recovery. That's a really great question. I mean, I've got to say, when I was a patient in the hospital, my rule of thumb was I would pull the covers up anytime I felt somebody come into my room who was depressed. My first rule of thumb is you've got to be happy to be at work. You've got to enjoy what you do. And unfortunately, nurses are way overworked. Often the most important person in the room was the janitor who always was singing. I loved it. I would make him sing. I'd just say, stay in my room, please. Uh, You are the most healing present. mm -hmm. It's just an important part that I want to say to our listeners, to nurses out there. Self-care is key and so very important. Your capacity to give is in equal measures to your capacity to give to yourself. And unless you're giving to yourself and doing for yourself, you're not going to be really good at giving to others. And also you've got to give to the staff under you. Absolutely. For example, I realized that my job uh, when I came back running the pain clinic was to make sure my staff was happy. I told all of them, don't come to work if you're depressed. You can come to work if you have a cold. We will mask you up. We can deal with that. Depression, you have no business sharing with the patient population. So we actually operate really as a team. And I think that's what delivering good health care should be all about. And so what part does humor play in your personal and professional life? Because you've cracked a couple jokes in here. <laughs> yes. So, yes, Huge, huge. I mean, that was one of the great things that Fu, my ex-partner, could really do. She talked me off the limb many, many times. Mm. And it was mostly by humor. My daughter also, by humor, were cats, but with a lot of humor. Mm -hmm. 
So in the movie, you say, who am I really now? Who do I want to be? So who are you now? Um, I'm still everything that I was. But what I'm doing is always listening for what's calling to me. You know, what next? And I think being a Buddhist, doing this last job that I did, being Shu So, being the head student, that took care of my Buddhist training. Now I'm thinking, what's next? And I think it may be writing a book, but I don't know. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I'm just trying to figure it out. So you and Helen and Mark have been traveling around the country since the launch of States of Grace, and you're sharing your story with thousands of people. You've also created an educational curriculum that's being taught at universities and to healthcare professionals. So where can people find out more about States of Grace and the educational components? Just go online, States of Grace, you know, no spaces, okay. statesofgrace.org. Okay. And then they can find the curriculum. We're available always. We're going to New Orleans. We're teaching at, we love this, OT Annual Association mm-hmm. meeting, which is going to be 12,000 people. So Fu and I are giving the keynote address. But we love doing that kind of stuff. It's so important and definitely something that calls to so many people. I'm so glad you're doing that. So what else would you like to share with our listeners? Um, take care of yourselves. Be of good cheer. Have hope, even though it seems ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> nothing's gained by feeling worried and hateful and distressed about the world because the world is so beautiful. It's amazing just to watch the sun, the slant of light change, the birds come down. It's wonderful. Grace. Always a pleasure to have you with us, Grace. Yep, it's been a pleasure. Thanks. We've been talking with Dr. Grace Damon. For more information about Grace in the documentary States of Grace, visit openstudioproductions.com or statesofgrace.org. Don't go away. Coming up, nurses and millions of supporters working hard and smart all across the country to pass the Medicare for All Act. You're listening to Nurse Talk Radio on Progressive Voices TuneIn and all of our broadcast partners. You're listening to Nurse Talk, where laughter's the best medicine. We are nurses, so we cannot diagnose, prescribe, or treat. But listen to us anyway, because we like to talk. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome back to Nurse Talk. I'm Casey Hobbs, and I am one of the thousands of nurses on duty this very day. To me, it is immoral that anyone profits off another person's need for health care. And it is repugnant to me that this profit comes from denying care. Well said. That's National Nurses United RN Melissa Johnson Camacho speaking passionately on behalf of her patients. With momentum building across the country, nurses along with 70% of Americans support bold action. That's why the Medicare for All Act of 2019 H.R. 1384 was introduced last month by Representative Pramila Jayapal. To coin the phrase, it takes a village, is no understatement. Nurses and Medicare for All supporters are mobilized and fired up. Here with us to talk about the unique strategies being employed is National Nurses United community organizer, Carolyn Bowden. Carolyn, great to have you with us today. Thanks so much, Casey. Great to be here. And yes, nurses are on duty all the time. Thank you so much for all your service. And uh, I'm so proud to be a part of an organization that is moving this very important issue at a fast pace and moving it forward. So, Carolyn, there's so much going on. Tell us about your work with cities and municipalities. Well, it's not a 
a new strategy, but we're really moving this forward. Um, we're getting cities and municipalities all across the country to pass resolutions that, you know, in the whereas is, it talks about our broken health care system. And then in the therefore be it resolved that the city and county or the municipality supports the movement towards HR 1384, which is the Medicare for All Act of 2019, and supports the uh, residents and, and constituents in that city to reach out to their representatives who may or may not be supporting and to encourage that representative to support. And it's also a way to engage the local people. You know, I mean, if you think about it, you know, there's that old adage, all politics is local. And so not only do we have to get our members of the House of Representatives to sign on to this bill, but it's great to engage the community and all of the folks that live in these cities and municipalities who are affected by this to also get involved. Yeah, that's so very important, Carolyn, because the truth is, as we said earlier, 70 percent of Americans want this. We're doing a new organizing strategy across the nation. We started by building using barnstorms, and I think you may have had someone who talked about uh, the barnstorm philosophy. But what that is is you get a lot of folks who are interested in getting engaged deeply in a room, um, you're not going through a whole bunch about the bill or about the health care because usually these are folks who want to get active. And then you train them to get out and canvas in their neighborhoods, canvas in their communities, talk to the neighbors about Medicare for All, about our system. And then we ask those people to call their legislators. And, and so that's one piece. That's like the barnstorm that folds into the canvases and the phone banks. And that's been very effective. I, I don't know if you know, but within um, – Within about a three-week period, we were able to get 30 more co-sponsors onto the Representative Jayapal's bill uh, at the end of February. And so when she released the bill, she had 107 original co-sponsors, whereas at the beginning of February, there were 73. I want to say to our listeners, if they want to get involved in this campaign, it's easy, it's fun, and they just have to visit Medicare with the number for all.org. And we have some communities, some partners that have been working with us all over the country. And it's, you know, like our revolution chapters, Social Security Works, Healthcare Now, a lot of other groups that are really engaged in this. And then you can find and work with groups in your community and maybe visit one of your boards of supervisors or one of your council members and ask them to use this resolution. I believe we, we will have, if we don't already have, a draft of the resolution we're using for these cities and municipalities. And then you just go and you lobby them and you ask these people to pass a resolution and ask them to get their colleagues to pass it too. I mean, in San Francisco, they haven't yet passed it, but they're about to. So we had um, unanimous co-sponsorship on this resolution. 11 of 11 said they wanted to sign on to this. So it is possible in your city and your municipality. And it's really about just working with your like-minded neighbors and colleagues. And together we'll build this. That's so true. What else would you like to share with our listeners? Well, first of all, thank you, nurses, for all of your work and keeping us all healthy and protecting us. And I hope that as a community organizer that I can get out there and we can engage more and more people to get involved in this process. And it's actually really easy. Please go to our website, Medicare, the number four, all.org. There's lots of great information on there. There's a calendar on there in our action section that lists 
all the campuses and events that are going on in your community, so it's easy to get involved. Uh, so please do that. Medicare, the number four, all.org. So very important. Thank you so much, Carolyn. Great. Thank you so much for having me today. I really appreciate it. Carolyn, thanks for being with us today, and thanks for all the work you and the thousands of supporters of Medicare for All are doing. It's wonderful work. Thank you. Bye-bye. We've been talking with National Nurses United, California Nurses Association, community organizer Carolyn Bowden. That music can mean only one thing. It's time for Healthcare in America with senior correspondent Donna Smith. Donna, welcome. Thank you, Casey. It's nice to hear your voice. Nice to hear you too, Donna. So how are you feeling? I know you just are coming off a surgery. Yeah, I'm coming through it. You know, a little bit of work on the knee and that's, you know, take some time to heal, but I'm getting through it. So are you in a straight leg so they, so you can't bend your knee, I would imagine? No, they're letting me bend it. It's interesting. I have a, I have a really large incision. It goes about nine inches on my knee and they've got, uh, they've got it drasty. I can even get in the shower, which is interesting. That's so nice. I'm not as restricted as I thought I would be, but it hurts. Are you weight bearing? Oh yeah. That's quite remarkable. So for those people out there, she broke her kneecap and your kneecap is a really small bone. And so when you crack it to put it back together again is very delicate work. And then that kneecap and why you have to make such a large incision is because all the muscles and tendons hook to that kneecap. It's very critical in the whole working of the knee. So good, good job that you got through it. One of the nurses, (laughs) the nurses were so wonderful, but I asked one of them why I was hurting above my knee so much. And she said, because they have to cut your quads. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Because all of those intersect with the kneecap. So. Yep. Yeah, it's very delicate surgery and, and kind of complicated. Yep. Well, so now, Donna, I don't know which is worse, having the knee and having surgery or Trump's 10-year budget unveiled oh. Monday calls for more than $845 billion in reductions to Medicare. It just is so mind-boggling. Let's talk about how big that number is. $845 billion is getting real close to a trillion. So you end up cutting that much money from the Medicare budget. Don't tell us that's all waste, fraud, and abuse because it's not. And we know what will happen with patients in that process and with nurses, too, is as the providers have cuts to what they're getting in terms of reimbursement, they're not going to want to serve Medicare patients as much as they have in the past. Which is designed to do. I'm sorry, but it's just interesting to me that he's uh, pushing this forward at a time where 70 percent of Americans want Medicare for all. Yep. And and we're supposed to think those two aren't connected. Yeah, it, it, it's outrageous. So they also say that these cuts are bipartisan. Come on, oh, is yeah, that true? Right. right. That is not true. And the Democrats have long called for appropriate kinds of monitoring of what people do with Medicare. Now, the reality is, of course, there is some fraud. Of course, there is some waste in the Medicare program. There are always, whenever there's money involved, there's always going to be people who take advantage of that money, whether it is public money or private money, they're going to try and take advantage of it. And the reality for most Americans is that if you go to your provider and you go to your hospital, those people are not defrauding you. 
they are not abusing the Medicare program. It's the people who have, you know, these freestanding clinics that do, you know, a hundred of a certain procedure on patients who may or may not need them. That's a different thing. And yes, Democrats have called for monitoring that more. So have Republicans. That's where bipartisan efforts come in. But not cutting the program by $845 billion. So do you think that this is going to come to pass before the 2020 election? And do you think that Congress would pass this kind of a bill? I highly doubt it, you know, especially after seeing that at least a few of the Republicans stood up to Trump on his latest issues. The reality is this Congress is not going to pass a budget that does that. These congressional members must go back to their districts and answer for what Trump is proposing here. They're not going to want to do that. There will be significant negotiations. Now, having said that, Every single one of us ought to weigh in with our congressional members, our senators, our House of Representatives rep, and say to them, we want you fighting for a sound and secure budget for Medicare. And that includes, yeah, of course, looking for any legitimate causes for abuse, but also making sure that you protect the program so that everybody who needs services can get them and so that they don't get any wild ideas about making Trump happy. But no, I don't think it can pass before the 2020 election. And I think it would be suicide for the Republicans if they did so. So, Donna, thank you always for being with us. Uh, I so appreciate it. And I hope that your healing becomes complete very soon. Thank you so much. It's always good to be on Nurse Talk. We've been talking with Nurse Talk senior correspondent and contributor to Healthcare in America, Donna Smith. For more information about these topics, visit nursetalksite.com. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for listening. And thank you to our executive producer, Patty Lockard, sound design and engineering, June Miller and JMC Sound. Taylor Lockard Research, and National Nurses United and all the nurses on duty today, and of course, our listeners and our guests. Take care and visit us at nursetalksite.com or like our Facebook page at Nurse Talk.